Welcome to Native Yoga Toddcast. So happy you are here. My goal with this channel is to bring inspirational speakers to the mic in the field of yoga, massage, body work, and beyond. Follow us at Native Yoga and check us out at nativeyogacenter.com. All right, let's begin. I'm so happy to have the opportunity to speak with Sarah Webb. And Sarah, where are you joining us from today? I'm in St. Petersburg, Florida. Nice. It's beautiful and hot here. We're not too far away. I'm over on the on the East Coast side. Yeah, I thought I noticed that. I love it in Florida. It's beautiful. It's nice and warm right now, so we're definitely getting a good sweat for sure, on a regular basis. <laughs> Absolutely. You don't need hot yoga. You, you just correct. go outside and do yoga. Good point. Good point. Just walk from your car to the grocery market and you're getting a good sweat. Exactly. exactly. And I'm excited to have you here because I, you are a speaker and an author. And does that cover the title that you would give yourself? Do you have other titles or a title that you like to use to describe your profession? I guess most people would call me, yes, a speaker, an author, of course, but a coach. And I really think that's a, a bit of a pigeonhole term. I consider myself a spiritual activist because I advocate for my audiences, for my clients, and really my vision for the world is that everyone will meditate. And so I am on a mission as a spiritual activist to help people at the intersection of science and spirituality to understand that meditation is medicine and that we can use it to heal ourselves because that's what I've done. Nice. And can you tell me a little bit about the books you have written? I have several books that are not yet published. However, my first book in publication with Balboa Press is entitled Look Lush. It is an art piece of 55 poems. The first part of the book is entitled Look, and it's 21 poems that deals directly, but in a very healing sort of way about some big T trauma. You know, we all have Big T trauma and little T trauma. I experienced um, some major sexual trauma about 14 years ago, and I used meditation as well as I had a facilitator who was a transpersonal and interpersonal hypnotherapist here in St. Petersburg that helped me to heal from that entirely. Wow. And then the second part of the book is entitled Lush, and that's 34 poems, and that deals with my coming out of the closet, as well as getting sober off of the alcohol. I used alcohol profusely and habitually and in an addictive fashion because I was really pushing down that sexual trauma mm. <laughs> that, that I did not want to deal with. I wanted to numb. I didn't want to face it. And isn't that um, what we sometimes do? It Sometimes it's not alcohol, but it's shopping or food or playing Candy Crush on our phones. Good you point. know, there's <laughs> yeah. all kinds of ways to distract and dissociate. 
and some ways are legal and some ways are not. And I am so grateful and blessed that all of these events have transpired because when you look at that word healing, I mean, intrinsically in that, it means that we have to be injured in order to heal. And if you think about the way that we build muscles, we literally rip our muscles open in order for them to grow. And it hurts. Yeah. But we're stronger as a result. And that's how I see this big T trauma that has occurred in my life. Nice. How long ago did you write that book? I wrote it in, well, I compiled it in the month of May. Some of the poems I did write during the month of May. Others I had written over the past several years. I have always been a writer. I have dozens of journals and I have a degree in writing, but I can tend to be quite verbose. <laughs> I guess that's why I became a public speaker so I could get paid to speak and, and coach people. And so when I became a mom for the first time, my biological child is uh, nearly six. And when I first became a mom, it was very difficult for me to journal like I used to and, and write short stories. Mm. I've, I've won awards for poems and short stories in the past. So I challenged myself to both stick to the habit of writing and be sparse and to write a haiku poem every day. And a haiku is just five syllables in the first line seven syllables in the second line and five syllables in the third. And it's not that there are many haikus that actually appear in the book, but that's what challenged me to begin honing my craft and to convey a lot of meaning in a very short period of time, a very few words. Nice. And poetry, a lot of people think it's dead, but I think it's the best time in the world for poetry, the best time in human history because of, hello, they're called memes. And people love sharing quotes. I mean, these little sound bites and fragments of wisdom, that's poetry. So I'm really blessed to have this book, Look Lush. It's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. It's available in print paperback for nine bucks or digital download for $4. (laughs) And I have many more to come. And that can be found on your website, which is sarahwebsays.com. Correct? Yeah. Cool. have nice. lots of information there. And I'm also very active on Instagram. And um, yeah, so I, I just love helping people. I've always helped people. It doesn't matter if I was a high school teacher or whatever I've done throughout my career. I've, I've been speaking actually since high school. And this opportunity as a result of the pandemic is just something that I've been a Toastmaster for seven years, and I absolutely love sharing how I've grown and changed and and just basically, I'm I'm a big nerd. (laughs) So I love to just read books for people and synthesize the information and package it up with little tidbits and stories from my life. Nice. What is an example of a public speaking event that you've done recently? I've done all manner of things. I do a lot of corporate events, working directly with business owners and managers in order to help their staff deal with stress. I mean, a lot of times we don't realize the great power that we have with our breath. Mm. And if we can realize that when we're in that fight or flight mode, we're not breathing properly. We're not breathing from the belly. And that's a physiological 
ancient physiology that we have carried over from when we were hunters and gatherers. You know, this autonomic nervous system that we had breathe, have breathes for us and beats our hearts and controls our sweat glands and salivary glands and blinking. But when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, that's what we typically call that fight or flight, we begin chest breathing from the upper part of our chest, which is really great if we need to actually fight or flee. But when it's traffic and deadlines and our bosses and our spouses and our kids, it can really build up and send cortisol. We've heard some about that and people are now, you know, some people in the mainstream are pushing pills to get rid of cortisol when really if we could just get in touch with yeah. what's going on in our bodies yeah. and learn how to belly breathe this is such a easy, portable, free way to tap into what's going on in our bodies. And then people can learn how to process stress and actually ground themselves in where they are, especially in the workplace. We have to work around people who maybe aren't our favorite people. You know? right, right. And so I do a lot of corporate um, trainings during the week, you know, before the my wife is a dentist, and so I got started doing that. I do conferences, private conferences. I've done Sweet 16 parties. I mean, I've spoken nice. at sober retreats. You name it, I've done it. And I really just enjoy interacting with people in that way where they they always come away and they say, gosh, I learned something new. I, I think that there's a couple of simple facts that most people don't understand about meditation because as I mentioned that's my real passion I I kind of trick people into t- learning about meditation <laughs> by talking about stress because meditation is such a wonderful way for us to get rid of our stress and I am just such a seeker I wanted to know why is it that meditation works and I'll give you a couple of facts all around us at every single moment it doesn't matter if we're on top of a hill or in a busy street they, they, the scientists have calculated that we have access to about um, several billions of bits of data. And the human brain is pretty amazing and can process around 11 million bits per second. But we are only conscious of between 40 and 50 of the 11 million bits per second that our brains and our bodies are, are have access to. So I did the math there. That means we're conscious of 0.04% mm. of everything that's actually being processed by our brains and our bodies. So 99.96% of everything that's available to us is being processed by what? Our subconscious. Mm. Now we have five senses and we have 11 million sensory receptors. But 10 million of the 11 million sensory receptors are dedicated to one sense, our sight. So if you want to access the 99.96% of information that's already inside of you, shut off access to 10 million of the 11 million sensory receptors, (laughs) i.e. close your eyes and go inside because that's where the magic is. That's where the subconscious can begin to bubble up because we're literally getting into the brainwave where our subconscious lives. If we only stay in beta and high beta is stress, then we're not going to ever be able to have access to that. The only time during waking hours when we drop into that subconscious state, which is the theta wave in between alpha, which is where most meditation is, and delta, which is deep sleep, is theta. And when we, some people like, when they're stressed, they like to drive 
or they like to go and work on sanding their boat down. And that's because when we drop into repetitive things that our subconscious is in control of, because we don't have to think about it anymore, that allows the subconscious to bubble up. But our eyes are still open. And so think about how much more powerful it is Mm -hmm. to actually close the eyes and then go inside. Yeah, good point. That's interesting. Can you give me an example or an idea of when you decided or felt that you wanted to heal the trauma that you had experienced? Was there some sort of catalyst that, I mean, I'm guessing that there probably was something inside that said, okay, I realized something has happened, but I'd prefer just not to look at it. What was the catalyst that helped you to turn that corner and feel like you wanted to be brave and, and, and process and heal and go through the, the therapy to, to come out the other side? Great question. I mean, I've always known about what happened. It's just that I repressed it. I told my sister I did not go to the police. I, I you know, barely told anyone, much less dealt with it myself. And when I began to get sober, which started in the end of 2018, I didn't actually succeed with continuous sobriety until the end of 2019. So it took me a little over a year, almost a year and a half to actually, I would be sober and then an event would happen. And we have this in the, in the general collective that like alcohol can be used to de-stress, which is an absolute lie. It actually causes stress in the body. So it took me a little while, but once I started playing with sobriety and had bouts of sobriety, I realized most poignantly that I needed alcohol in order to be intimate with my now ex-husband. And I knew why. (laughs) Even though I was gay through college and a little bit after college, I called myself bisexual and I only dated women, but I repressed that because I wanted to have a baby. And I knew that my very strict Southern Baptist parents would not accept me for who I am. And to this day, they do not accept me for who I am. So in answer to your question, I began, of course, when, when we get sober, a lot of people deal with um, anger that is kind of unexplained. They're just not really sure why, but it's because we have been repressing by drinking And then we have no outlet to numb. And I didn't have that initially. Mm. But what I did have was when I got married and we started blending households. I have a biological child. She has two. You know, that's that's no joke. (laughs) And um, I started noticing that my go-to response was anger, which, and I put out a reel on this recently, you know, usually anger is is not actually a primary emotion. It's a secondary emotion and it indicates that there's hurt underneath either sadness or fear usually. So I started seeing a transpersonal interpersonal hypnotherapist in order to deal with the anger. And that's when these Mm. memories surfaced and I was able to, to deal with them in a really beautiful way. It wasn't immediate and it certainly wasn't easy, but healing requires injury and healing hurts. And the result is always worth it. Wow. Well, I appreciate you being so honest and sharing your story. That's incredible. Absolutely. Um, I think it's empowering because I know that 
there's obviously a lot of us probably have experienced trauma. Well, I guess, like you said, there's the big T and the little T. So would you say that everybody has had some sort of little T trauma? Like, for example, someone Mm -hmm. made fun of us on the playground or there was, you know, um, a million and one different things that have happened, could have happened. Oh yeah. Um, the big T trauma, I, what do you think the percentages are? I mean, uh, like half the world, uh, a third of the world, uh, one in a hundred. I, Cause I, I just wonder that sometimes it seems like, I, I don't know that anybody could get through life without having some type of big T experience. Um, but maybe that's, because if I do have experience with that, then I think, well, maybe probably everyone has, but maybe it's a smaller minority, a smaller group of people have. Do you have any insights into that or thoughts about that? I wish I had the statistics and I'm definitely going to look it up. But even if we just look at like reports of sexual trauma with women, it's one in three. And I didn't report. And I know a lot of other people Mm. who didn't. So if you just look at that, that's, it's a high percentage. And, and yeah. you know, let's not diminish that little T trauma because it's all relative. And vibrationally, if we just look at, so everything that happens in our lives before the development of the prefrontal cortex would start around the age of 10. So everything from pretty much ages like four to eight, nine, 10 is when our brains are in that meditative state. We haven't gone up into beta around the age of 10 is when we Mm. we really fully start to inhabit beta. Everything before that, our brains take in as beliefs, basic Mm. beliefs about Mm. how the world is. So for somebody like me, I saw people drinking. I grew up outside of New Orleans. I mean, drinking is just what people do. And I'm sure that's for a lot of the world, you know, it's just, it's very common. And so one of the beliefs that I had is that alcohol is safe. I mean, and if you have a little T trauma, big T trauma, uh, some uncle that habitually made fun of you, a person on the playground who did something that could be seen as traumatic when it's done even once or twice, yeah. we can yeah. carry that vibration, that belief with us into our adulthood and continue to attract those things into our lives because it's something that we need to heal. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter if it's seemingly small, it might be perpetuating itself as to a, a lack of abundance in our lives or um, us thinking that no one likes us or, you know, and then that can continue to play out in the workplace and, it, you know, social groups, it doesn't matter where it is um, because we're, we're basically here to heal. Good point. Have you, it sounds like then when you're giving um, talks and or speaking in front of groups that if you were to lay down that found, uh, foundation, do you then bring some type of meditation practice into the session? Or you did say that you like to kind of trick people into it. <laughs> what, what, what is your, um, and, and I'm also get, getting the sense that you're, you try to keep it maybe with less yogic and Sanskrit and like, you know, terminology Mm -hmm. that might (laughs) give them a little bit of like where they might turn away from it because they hear a word that's foreign. Do you, what, what is uh, a a technique that you use to try to keep it really simple and down to earth? 
Absolutely. I am trying to secularize yoga as much as possible. Of course, having the nomenclature of the official terms helps to spur your own, um, yeah, you know, yeah. establishing yourself as an expert. But I love to teach basic breath work when it's a smaller workshop. Obviously, like thousands of people in the audience, it's not a great time to, to teach belly breath. Mm. But belly breathing is a really wonderful way, especially in like, you know, a, a few dozen people or a small office setting to just teach people how to use their diaphragm and fill their entire lungs. And and people are like, wow, I just feel more alive. I can yeah. see better. Like yeah. colors are, are better. Because really out of all the pranayama techniques, belly breathing is the safest one that everyone, doesn't matter if you have hypertension or if you're pregnant, you, know, you don't have to get personal and ask people about their your medical history. Everyone can belly breathe no matter what. And so that's the one that's my go-to. Nice. Now, when I do private coaching, which I'm completely booked out and on a wait list for private coaching, we do a lot of intense personal work. And of course, I get to know the client. It's, it's a very custom coaching cycle of 13 weeks at a time. And I learn about everything that they're wanting to work on in their lives. And we do meditation practices. I'm certified with Dr. Sue Mortar's Energy Codes oh. as an Energy Codes coach, and that informs my coaching as well. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's phenomenal. I'm, She's a yogi and a TM meditator. I practice TM. Nice. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm yeah, not familiar with her. her I'm not familiar with her work, but I'm. I'm glad you're bringing it up. I'm. I'm I always want to trying to hear about everybody and what they're up to. <laughs> is um. So is that your primary introduction to meditation is through TM or transcendental meditation? Or did you have a kind of build up to learning that particular technique? Or can you explain a little bit about your, your evolution of maybe first hearing about breathing and to where you are now? Yes, I am so blessed that I found yoga at a relatively young age. I can't believe in Southern Louisiana, I found a yoga class at a shape and that yoga teacher was steeped in all the yogic knowledge. And I had no idea how blessed I was until I moved away to Dallas. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go to yoga and went to a gym yoga class. And was like, this is not yoga. This mm. is, what, what is this? <laughs> but so that was my first experience with meditation was post yoga. And I love to tell my clients, if you're having trouble meditating, sit down sweaty because when you get out all that energy and your yeah, physiology, yeah. meditation comes a lot easier. And so I, I'll never forget that first time that she was trying to activate the sixth energy chakra and talking directly about the pineal gland. And I saw that beautiful purple color that she was talking about right there in my third eye. And I went up to her afterwards and I'm like, what was that? I've got to know more about that. And so I started reading Autobiography of Yogi, oh, which I've yeah. read several times. Oh, yeah. And then I started trying to find a personal meditation practice that I could do on my own. And I went to other yoga studios. I, I did some Buddhist temples. I, at one point, did a Deepak Chopra online thing for a few weeks. And every technique that I learned, I would like, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to do this on this day at this time. And right after work, I'm going to sit down and, and I just never really wanted to do it. And so it was not a practice. Yeah. It was not something that I yeah. went to regularly. Yeah. And then one day I heard about TM on a podcast and they had a 
mindfulness expert and a TM expert. And what I loved about what the TM expert said is that TM is not mindfulness. It's kind of mindlessness Mm. and it's totally effortless and you can still have thoughts Mm. and that you get this mantra that's a thought word sound and it doesn't mean anything in any language. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is for me. And so I took a four day course. It does cost a little bit of money here in the United States. And that was it. Like that changed my life. I have been regular for over six years, 20 minutes, twice a day. I've learned some of the advanced. There's like four advanced techniques as well. One of them is like a nighttime technique. So I am like a meditation. I'm just so fanatical about it. I call myself a meditation mentor because I really don't think that anybody needs a teacher in order to meditate. There's insight timer. There's tons of stuff for free on YouTube. There's other apps like Headspace. And it's really just about having that sounding board because I really think that there's a lot of fear around meditation. Even for yogis, people feel like they're not going to be doing it right or they need a guide or they they sit down and they expect, there's all these shoulds, there's all these expectations about like, you're supposed to be levitating and like, you're supposed to have these beautiful experiences. But a lot of times it's a, it's a somewhat unpleasant experience because our body is getting the gunk out. Mm. And so it's good to have some of these kind of intentional distractors like visualization, like body awareness, like pranayama and other techniques like a mantra to help us to get over. It's what James Clear calls that plateau of latent potential. It's like most people quit. At that point. Yeah. But if you can just push through, it looks like you've been doing it forever. And so, yeah, I'm just, I love meditation and I hope that everyone will at least try to find the kind that works for them and to be consistent because that's when it really starts changing your life. (laughs) Wonderful. Good answer. I'm, I'm curious. You mentioned that you like to bridge the gap between the spiritual and the scientific in relation to meditation, can you give me a little understanding about maybe your upbringing with, say, spirituality and or religion and how have you either um, brought that into your meditation practice or has meditation practice evolved, uh, helped you evolve that into something that's really unique for you? What do you th- where do you stand on all this? Well, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting. I don't think I've ever said this before, but meditation is my religion. <laughs> and I was raised in Southern Baptist Oh, yeah, you did say culture. that. Yeah, you mentioned, I'm sorry, and I forgot you mentioned that. So, yeah, no worries. I was, I was in church on Sunday morning. I sang in the choir on Sunday night, and I was there on Monday night for red beans and rice, and on Wednesday night I was there in the youth group, and then I went to school there Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, yes. all at the same school, uh, this first Baptist. And I really, you know, they say that, the, you know, the Bible says, train up a child in the way he or she should go. And, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And I definitely have a lot. I was in Bible drill. I, mean, I went to Bible drill every single summer. And most people probably don't even know what that is. It almost it sounds self-explanatory. <laughs> Bible drill, like you got drilled with the Bible. But um, <laughs> memorizing. And so, yeah, it's definitely still part of me. And and of late, because I'm now in my early 40s, I am starting to really embrace some of the 
yeah. songs and because I don't think that we need to reject, which is what I did in my early twenties. I rejected yes. and I used to, you know, try to establish my own. I was doing a lot of study on my own about Eastern religions and, and I just don't think that's really necessary. Everything is one as long as, you know, we're using it for good because everything in moderation, right? It, it's, but when we have that literally drilled into our heads and, I think that that's when people can become fanatical and start to try to proselytize too much because really like our practices should be our personal practices and we don't need to go shout it from a mountaintop and, and save people. And I mean, I, I don't know, maybe that's what I'm trying to do here is, yeah, is trying yeah, to yeah. save people in my own way, but I'm certainly not, um, having a call to action that involves repenting. And so I, <laughs> uh, nice combination, nice like, combination hey. of terms, <laughs> call to action <laughs> with repenting. I like that blending of like the, the business world with the, uh, just laying it out there. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's all about where we find home. And I mean, a lot of people who experience big T trauma, need a very organized yeah, religion. Yep, Some people yep. need a regular support group to go to in order to process what they've gone through. And for me, it's my personal meditation practice. And I meditate with other people too. That's one of the things that I love about TM nice. is yep. they have follow-ups yep. and you're able to go and, and ask questions and meditate with people because it's, it's so simple and effortless. But I think that we complicate it sometimes. And so, yeah, I'm, That's cool. I'm just so grateful. That's amazing. Yeah. You mentioned um, reading Yogananda's book, Autobiography of a mm-hmm. Yogi. And I, I remember that mm-hmm. was one of the first, um, when I started really wanting to learn about yoga, that was the book I p- picked up. And so then I decided to get the self-realization fellowships and then is there, uh, so, sorry, the self-realization fellowship teachings that Yogananda had put together where you get these things in the mail every two weeks and, uh, the teachings kind of start talking about what you mentioned about bringing your attention to the brow and or the third eye area and looking mm-hmm. for that blue dot and then mm-hmm. getting a little more information that, you know, I think from what I understand from Yogananda's teaching is that that blue dot is a way to access uh, conversations with something larger than us and or almost like a portal and or an opportunity to time travel or, you know, Yogananda yeah. in his book, he has so many, uh, fantastic, uh, yeah. things around yoga, you know, <laughs> like people floating on water and people living for hundreds of years and coming back and yeah. being seen in one area while the other person saw the same person yeah. 500 miles away. And, you know, so, I mean, definitely if you're interested in yoga, it gets you super intrigued. Now that you've had, like you said, you've had like that rebellious phase in the 20s and now this like grounding phase in your early 40s, do when you revisit your encounter with uh, connecting with the pineal gland and say you meet someone who's more scientifically orientated and less um, geared toward believing that you can communicate with God through the third eye. How do you explain some of these yogic ideas where it then is more secularized? 
Well, if we just look at the chakras, every single one of our chakras, the seven main chakras, are directly related with an aspect of our endocrine system. Mm. Every single one of them. And they regulate our moods, our hormones. Mm. And what's the difference between a human and a robot, but our emotions, right? Otherwise, we would just operate just like a robot without them. And so... I think, um, you know, that's why I try to eliminate the woo from the woo-woo, at least <laughs> one of them, and really relate everything back to the body and just how we practice yeah. stress and, and why meditation works and mm. and how if you look at the pineal gland itself, which I don't get a whole, I don't go very deep. This is like my personal knowledge and, and understanding of it. The pineal gland is a light receptor. And I mean, everything is light. We're compressed light. Everything is is energy, right? Yeah, and yeah. and if we look at quantum physics, which I don't get too deep into in my talks, but I love quantum physics and have read extensively on it myself. I believe that when we have some of those transcendent, transcendental or transcendent experiences during meditation, that we are accessing the unified field of all Mm. possibilities. I mean, there's all creativity. I have had poetry dropped into my head. I've had beautiful ideas just seemingly appear out of nowhere. And I have learned some meditation techniques where I absolutely know that the experience that I had was real, even though I was, Essentially, you know, in my home, <laughs> I was communicating with people and, and having experiences not quite as profound as what Yogananda talks about, but very similar. Yeah. Where I just knew things and I was able to communicate with people that were thousands of miles away. And, and I've also just had really simple synchronicities to where, like, this was a couple weeks ago, I was meditating in the morning with my wife and, and I, thought about a friend of ours we hadn't seen in months and so I reached out to her on Instagram I I should have texted her but it was all perfect because we saw her that night at this conscious dance and I was like oh my gosh I thought about you this morning she was like I was thinking about you this morning and it's like we were both meditating perhaps at the same exact time and we came up into one another's consciousness and then the universe put us together at this conscious dance event and I, I just know that if people can look into, let's just look at the scientific studies that have been done around meditation. Meditation helps people with their blood pressure, with their stress levels. It decreases cortisol in the brain and blood. It improves sleep. It improves mood. People have been known to have terminal diseases and then start meditating. And their life improves drastically and they get to understand their bodies. They they tap into that power that they already have inside of them, that 99.96% of information that already exists and they're able to find resources for themselves that are not traditional medicine, which we know that Western medicine is, of course, helpful in some situations. However, it is only treating symptoms. It is yeah. not dealing yeah. with root causes. Yeah. I think that meditation gets to the root of our lives. It gets to the root of our systems in an energetic sense. 
and that we can use it as modern mainstream magic, or you could call that medicine. Nice. Agreed. I'm, <laughs> I'm curious if you have some advice for me. If I receive information that I had faith in somebody and then information comes my way where I lost faith in that person. And, you know, you kind of get that, like your earth gets, the earth gets rocked a little bit, you know what I mean? Like where you Mm -hmm. really, you know, you really had strong, just really trust. Yeah. Strong trust. And then you get that news that, yeah, that person's going to jail right now, you know, for something that was really horrible. Um, I believe in people. I trust people. All the people in my life that I get to see on a daily basis, like I, I trust them. Like I believe in them. I, I, um, and when these events happen where my core gets rocked like this, I, I really, um, you know, you get that, like it only takes me like a day or two or like three days where then I'm, I start getting that question in my mind of like, well, geez, if I put on, if I really, I loved that person and thought they were so great to find this information out, how do I keep trusting everybody, you know? And mm. so I'm curious if you have any advice for me. <laughs> I think I'll be fine in like two days, but last night I got one of those messages where I was like, oh my God. <laughs> You know, like I just couldn't believe it. And um, I mean, I, I, I know I'll be fine, but I, I just, I'm having a hard time reconciling that right now. Do you, how do you deal with that? How do you cope with that? Have you had, obviously you've had some of that experience already, it sounds like. Yeah, I'm such an honest person, honest to a fault probably sometimes. <laughs> and I'm a big truster. And I have been burned a lot. I, I mean, I've done a lot of shadow work Mm. and I have some resources that I'm happy to email over to you. I appreciate that. If you're interested, um, because you're the second person to bring up shadow. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really know about it surprisingly, even though I've been a yogi for so long and I, and I hadn't really done any of it, but there's a great book by Debbie Ford called the dark side of the light chasers for, newbies I'll write that to down. the dark side of the light chasers cool debbie ford and Darks. i got it there are other there's plenty of other books out there about um embracing the shadow but i think that the biggest question that all of them have in common is where am i this way yeah vibrationally we are everything you know that's what embracing the shadow is about is about admitting that we are all one. We are all, you know, one human organism and just each individual, individual cells. And I believe that we're here to heal the collective. I mean, I'm getting way off on personal <laughs> views and these are things, not things I That's typically okay. put out there, yeah, but I feel I like I'm in a trust this. tree thank here. You. Yeah, we're in the trust tree, right? So, yes, thank but, you. Um, yeah, because I was dealing with, uh, you know, people in my family who were incredibly homophobic. Yeah. And yeah. I was raised to be, to, to live in that hate space, you know, mm. being raised in the South. And uh, a lot of what Debbie Ford talks about, some of the exercises that I did in the mirror is go to the mirror and call yourself mm. that. 
I am homophobic. I am homophobic. I am over and over and over again until it loses its grip Mm. on you. Yeah. And so whatever this atrocity or, or illegal thing that this person did, I mean, that's a simple way. You don't have to read any books. You can just go and just, you know, where (laughs) am I this way? And, and how this is showing up for me in my life vibrationally because it is somewhere that I need to heal. Yeah. And so how can I embrace this in a unique way in order to accept this part of myself? Because we are all part of one big human family. Yeah. And this person is part of my soul group, you know, and, and they're here to show me somewhere. And I don't know if you believe in, in past lives or reincarnation or anything like that, but, you know, it could be a vibrational pattern yeah. that is yeah. from not today. Yeah. Karmic past. Karmic past. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, now that you say that, no, okay. <laughs> yeah. Good, good point. Good observation. Yeah. Amazing. Well, for your vulnerability there, that was a really big question to. to well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I was like, I was like, do I even talk to Sarah about this today? Well, we're just meeting for the first time. Keep it chill, Todd. Keep it chill. I figured I won't go. I won't go. <laughs> I won't go into like the details, but yeah, I just figured that the base outline. So I appreciate that advice. That's, that's wonderful. It is beautiful. Thank you. So I'm curious, you had made mention, um, that you have a book coming out. Can you Mm -hmm. talk about that one? Sure. Yeah. The, um, the book look lush is a collection of my original poetry, 55 poems. And it's just 88 pages, and it will take you less than an hour to read. I do like to give a little bit of a trigger warning because it does mention in a rather obtuse way about some of the healing that I've done from the traumas. Um, I was raped 14 years ago by eight men. And I, those first 21 poems deals directly with that. And it really has to do with looking on the inside at who we are and and at those shadows that we just spoke of uh, in order to heal because vibrationally we're attracting this to ourselves in order to heal. And then lush is aptly named because something that is lush is perhaps it's prolific, perhaps it's green and beautiful and also Lush is a slang term for somebody who drinks too much. <laughs> and so <laughs> I didn't catch that. But thank you. <laughs> I was thinking of the, the yeah, the greenery part. Like <laughs> Yeah. Well the the definitions are right there in the book. <laughs> Miriam Webster. <laughs> and so yeah, um I that's thirty four poems and those are more centered around some of the more sultry moments, if you will, from when I came out of the closet and also meeting my now wife. And it does follow somewhat of a chronology there as well as when I got sober, it was December 28th, 2019 was my first sober day that I've obviously stuck because I'd had others. And then when quarantine hit, I was 80 something days sober. So I spent a lot of time at the beach and a lot of time disconnecting and a lot of time writing. Mm. 
And so those 34 poems are kind of toggle back and forth between coming out of the closet and, and being free with my newfound sexuality, if you want to call it that. And um, also like healing in conjunction with meditation and nature, because Deepak Chopra says that if you can't meditate, spend time in nature because God is there. Mm, nice. And so I did a lot of that being located very close to the beach. Thank goodness they didn't close our beaches here. I don't know if your beaches got closed. Ooh, good point. Good point. Yeah, we had ours closed for a little bit. And it, that was the point where people really started to go batty, you know, because it was, you know, uh, wait a minute, the beach, like that's the one place we can actually be outside and have a little space. And I remember that was a tense moment. I'm curious then on that note, it sounds to me like you can look at the pandemic and the experience that you've had as like, uh, like a liberating experience, like, a an opportunity to really just come into your own and, and, uh, grow out of it. What, what is your, when you look back on it, what are your thoughts? I have not spent a whole lot of time thinking about, um, the pandemic in general, because, I mean, it doesn't matter what happens to us. It's about how we respond to it. Yeah. So it's not like, uh, you know, me getting frustrated or, or thinking about the, the fact uh, that it occurred is going to help anything. Yeah. But for me personally, yeah, a lot of change, a lot of transformation. I am really grateful actually because, um, I had distanced myself from a lot of the events around the job, the office that I had at the time, right when the pandemic started, you know, they would have happy hours. (laughs) And so obviously I didn't go to those or if I did, I went very quickly, showed up, you know, showed my face, shook a few hands and left as soon as people started in on their second drink. And so I am really kind of grateful that I, that that opportunity to be out was taken away from me. Yeah, I think that that yeah. was a blessing. And, yeah. and I mean, it's not like uh, plenty of people who didn't even drink very much started drinking prolifically during quarantine because it was like the only thing to do. And they were just robbed of all of their habits. And so, I mean, it was very common to see like, everybody talking on social media about all the drinking that they were doing because it's difficult to change anything. Habits rule our lives. And and I talk about that during my workshops and with my clients and, and, uh, you know, just at least 40% of everyone's life, it doesn't matter how creative and spontaneous you are, 40% of your life at least is ruled by habits and people who are very intentional and and really like to do things the same way. It's like 80 or 90% is so basically it's like Dr. Joe Dispenza says, like you can take your past and take a copy of it and lay it right on top of your future because we mm. pretty much just repeat the same habits over and over again, the same thought patterns and the same emotions. And we're basically addicted to these emotions. And so it was a big disruptor in a lot of people's lives. I think that some people, it was a big boon. They got healthier. And I think some people, you know, they went down the toilet, but then everybody's kind of rebounding. I think that it really teaches you who your friends are and who you can trust. And I mean, I'm sorry, you had a a big breach of trust, but 
I think that it kind of whittled down or weeded out some of the false friends that I had at least and whoever has stuck around, those are true friends. Agreed. That's a great, I like, I, I appreciate that kind of, uh, summary of the experience because you're right and it does I, I think the thing that keeps you know like I, I'm almost I keep laughing about now is it it feels like we're like right back to normal there are little things here and there that will remind me that you know that that, that it, we did go through like a major event but mm-hmm. um you know I, I, there's there's been so many things lately that I'm just like ah oh, this feels so good because it's just like just like normal. And I remember like, I love music. I love going to concerts. Like I get so mm-hmm. much good energy out of like just hearing people sing and being in, in crowds and stuff. And for me, that was like such a big, big challenge. So recently to be able to go and just see shows, I, I just was like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really appreciating like, oh my God, mm-hmm. I really do get a lot out of this. Like I need this. In my, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. <laughs> so I'm so, th- I'm so thankful things are coming back around like that. I'm curious. Oh, yeah. I right. I'm I'm curious, Sarah. Uh, you mentioned that like you put a real solid focus on making meditation like ground zero. Like that's something that's going to really play a big part in as you're coaching people for them to work and process through whatever's going on and have like technique to get through it and grow, become who we dream of being. What are your big dreams, your big aspirations? Like if, I guess it doesn't matter how long of a time period, five years, 10 years, 20 years, but what is your big, big picture dream? Well, I don't have a timeline on it, Nice, but I had a meditative experience and it's a vision, a literal vision that I have in my head that is probably a little bit difficult to explain because it's interesting. You asked me at the beginning of this conversation if I lead people in meditation and and I don't lead large groups in meditation, only one-on-one and, and small groups when I do group coaching or things in corporate offices. And I had this vision, this was about almost a year ago, and it was so crystal clear. And I had it twice within a very short period of time. And so I sometimes use this vision that I had and I meditate on it in order to to manifest it. Not TM, because TM is its own thing. But if I only have a few minutes or sometimes right before bed or right after I wake up, you know, those are the times when you can access that hypnagogic or hypnopompic state of the brain where there's that, they call it the trap door between the conscious and the subconscious is rather thin. But the image was me leading like close to a thousand people. It was like a darkened conference room or like auditorium. And I was on the stage and everyone was meditating and I could see these swirls of energy, like colors that I can't even name the colors that they were because it was dark, but I could see it. It sounds fantastical, I know, but 
I knew, I mean, I started crying. I'm like, that's what I'm here to do. This is my purpose. Mm-hmm. It's my dharma. Nice. This is what I have to work toward every day. And I don't know what it means, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so ready for it. <laughs> I'm ready to manifest it. Nice. And so every day, everything that I do is basically, you know, working toward that or, or working backwards from there, if oh, you will. Nice. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you for that question. <laughs> oh my gosh, right? I, I'd, I'd like to... Uh, I, I, I'd like to share that vision. That that sounds incredible, at least on the level. At, at one point when you're explaining like a large group of people and leading a meditation, because it sounds like what you said, you work one-on-one. So the idea of doing that on a, a larger scale, maybe that's something that, do you feel like you have a little reservation toward that? Or do you feel, I'm kind of curious because uh, obviously one-on-one, it's a lot easier to navigate the situation and, and, and read somebody. And then if there's something that is apparent that they need some assistance with, then, you know, you can be right there to answer it or to acknowledge it. And then on the large group, that seems like it would be uncontrollable on some level, right? Like mm-hmm. what if a thousand people all at the same moment have some sort of big T release moment where, mm-hmm. you know, a, a large group comes in contact with all of these really deep seated issues that are holding us back. Like that's almost a little scary, I guess. I mean, I, I, I would mm-hmm. be a little cautious of that, right? Like, cause we want to be responsible when we're working with people. Like we don't want to create an, an, uncom- an uncomfortable situation. Is that, does that sound, does that make sense at all? Or do you, does that something that you've thought about and, and, and agree with or disagree with? What do you think? You know, Todd, that's really perceptive of you. I am yes, a little hesitant um, because of, because I've, ta- I've taught high school and I know that there's a big difference between six kids in a class and 16 and 26 and so yeah, I can't imagine yeah, 1600 yeah, yeah. or you know even several hundred trying to organize some sort of an activity like that synchronize it if you will but the real big reservation that I've had is that I haven't wanted to step on the toes of the TM organization because mm. I have I've learned yes. techniques that are that are kind of proprietary or yeah. trade secrets or whatever and yep. And of course, I'm honoring that oh. oath that I took. Yeah. But um, as a result, it's it's really propelled me into learning about other meditation techniques, yep. so that yep. I am not infringing upon the oath that I took to them, and instead, I'm able to to share just some of the things out there that because it's interesting because you mentioned autobiography of a yogi and and some of those specific techniques are repeated in other places. And yes. so yep. um, just having more and more knowledge and, and I've been following Dr. Joe Dispenza. I'm going to a retreat of his very soon. And, um, you know, Dr. Sue Mortar, she does these, that, that's the energy code. She does these meditations as well. And she was a TMer and, and may still be a TMer and is a yogi and she does this body awake yoga. But, um, you know, I think it's just, getting comfortable with making sure that I'm remaining in my integrity. Cause as I said, I'm honest to a fault and I'm a do gooder. And if you tell me that this is the line, I'm going to stay behind the line. Yep. And 
so I think it's just been me getting comfortable with calling myself. It's like I, I even still have reservations of calling myself a meditation teacher because yeah, even though I yeah, do teach it yeah. all the time, I want to call myself yeah. a meditation mentor because I just don't want to claim that and to have any retribution of them thinking that I'm putting out any of the information yeah. that's proprietary. Yeah. Wow. That's a great answer because that is a big dilemma that we all face as mm-hmm. I'm going to use your term, spiritual activists. Mm-hmm. Don't you think? Because we learn, we take this knowledge, we grow from it, we benefit from it. I think the natural progression is that we want to share it. And that's like at the heart of most spiritual traditions. Like what fun would it be to be enlightened if everyone else is suffering? Like, don't we want to help other people? But Mm. then, but then the ownership of the techniques and I, and I agree with you. I am the same way as you. Like I toe the line when I'm told Mm -hmm. to put my toes on the line, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I look down, I get them on that line. Like I, I don't mess around like, and I, and I respect that big time. And I've always had, I think that's ingrained probably from when we were young. So, mm-hmm. but, but then the rebellious side of me that just yep. wonders about ownership and trademarking and copywriting and, yeah. and the, the business side of it. And, Oh, what a dilemma, but maybe it doesn't have to be a dilemma. And, and I, I do appreciate you taking it down that direction. Cause I think that's a really important question or, or, or discussion to have. I know we're coming in already at an hour and, um, and I'm like, Oh shoot. Like now I really want to like pick that one apart, but, um, maybe we could rejoin again in a future conversation and kind of pick up on that, on that. No. Absolutely. And you also, yeah. and, and also at the, you made mention like, um, at the beginning before I hit the record button that we know where's the link. Cause we're going to do it on video. And one of my dreams is to like, kind of be able to move over toward the podcasting with the video camera on as well and not be so self-conscious. So maybe I'll step mm. outside my comfort zone. <laughs> I'll send you the zoom link. People will actually be able to see us if they want, but, um, I would like to continue our conversation because Sarah, you have a great vibe. I mean, you, I love you. You're very passionate. You're a great speaker. I mean, that's what you do for a living, but you it's, I love to have the opportunity to speak with people that I probably could have just stopped asking questions and you could have gone straight for an hour and just kept going with some great information without me even like prodding you at all. So <laughs> thank you for making it extremely easy. Cause I know like, you know, we're, we're both coming out on a limb, like we don't know each other, but Hey, let's get together and talk about yoga meditation and what's going on in our lives and actually attempt to be honest on a, on a public forum and not be nervous about what people are going to think of us and all that jazz. So I just really appreciate this opportunity and I, I think I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with me and, and um, I really thank you. Todd, this has been one of my all-time favorite conversations of my life. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, the, we, we obviously have a, a deep connection here. So thank you for this opportunity to get to know you better and your listeners. Thank you. Well, I'm going to put all the information down below so people can find you if you're listening and you're driving and or walking or exercising or something like that. Go back to the show notes later and click on the links and go look at Sarah's website and follow her on Instagram and LinkedIn. 
Um, and I will reach out again, Sarah, to do another session with you because I, I think people are going to love to hear your message. So once again, thank you so much. I can't wait. Thanks so much, Todd. Many blessings to you. Same to you. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Native Yoga Toddcast is produced by myself. The theme music is dreamed up by Bryce Allen. If you like this show, let me know. If there's room for improvement, I want to hear that too. We are curious to know what you think and what you want more of, what I can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts to info at Native Yoga Center. You can find us at nativeyogacenter.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate it and review and join us next time. 